Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To the girl who hates those hot dog leg selfies and just wants to snap up a hot deal... Oh, there's another one. Hashtag rest assured at summergirl38. Message received. And to the working man who hasn't had a vacay in what feels like forever. It's just been so busy. That rest I... assured, busy bee. I got you. Please don't call me that. Whatever you're planning this summer, for a better rate, make it Maldron. Join now and save 10 euro at maldronhotels.com. Terms and conditions apply. Southern Fried True Crime covers cases that may not be suitable for young listeners. And there may also be some explicit language used. Listener discretion is advised. The following is a quote from Judge William B. Kane of the Tennessee Court of Appeals. Being overbearing and obnoxious, as well as in repeated civil contempt of court, does not equate to criminal conviction. The decision of this court is made after careful consideration of the issues and not because of Perry March, but in spite of him. End quote. However, just because Perry had been triumphant in the civil cases does not mean that homicide detectives had forgotten about him, despite never finding Janet's body. At times, Metro had 12 detectives working the case and had spent an estimated $500,000 on the investigation though some insiders say it's really closer to a million. And you might think that a man who got away with murder would try to fly under the radar, live a peaceful, quiet life. Not Perry March. During his six years in Mexico, he had his finger in all kinds of pies. And every pie was a scheme to swindle the locals, especially the vulnerable retirees, with many losing their life savings as Perry squirreled away close to a million dollars in offshore accounts. But it was all finally catching up to him. This drama of almost Shakespearean proportions was about to kick into the highest gear yet, when Perry March was brought back to Nashville to face the music because the prosecution's star witness would be his own father. Welcome to Episode 22, The Reckoning, The Trials of Perry March, and the conclusion to the Janet Levine March series. Before we jump into the trials of Perry March, I want to go back and tell you about his six years in Mexico. Perry landed in Ajajit, Mexico with a bang. He took out a full-page ad in their local paper announcing a new medical clinic project called Primedical. Quote, Meet the administrators and developers. 
S. Samuel Chavez, Esquire, and Perry A. March, Esquire, Doctorates of Law. He had other written materials with potential investors with the word doctor in front of his name, as well as Chavez's. Neither men were doctors, and Perry no longer had a license to practice law in the States, much less Mexico. But not too many residents of the tiny resort town were interested in investing anyway. Most medical care, aside from emergency care, was about an hour away, but these were retirees. They were invested in living their dream of retirement in luxury, not building hospitals. And even though this venture was failing, he was still trying several other get-rich-quick schemes. Within six months of arriving in Mexico, there were already complaints filed against him with local immigration authorities by Americans and locals alleging fraud and embezzlement. Perry had hooked up with Samuel Chavez, a Mexican-American lawyer, right after he moved to Mexico. The two men remained partners until July of 2000, when Chavez found out that Perry had stolen $85,000 from him. Chavez had also had his American license suspended. They were a natural fit. For the 15 months that they were partners, they established a number of businesses. Guardian Security, C&M Insurance, Misty Mountain Extended Care Community, and of course, their masthead, Prime Medical, all of which failed with investors losing hundreds of thousands of dollars. In the fall of 2001, Perry opened a coffee shop called Media Luna, or Half Moon, with his wife Carmen. He opened it over the objections of the La Floresta Homeowners Association and the municipality of Chapala. Perry ignored warnings and lashed out at the locals, but the government of Chapala did not issue a business license and the cafe was shut down within two weeks. This started a whole new legal drama in Mexico. Perry tried filing for his business license under several different names. He appealed to the courts dozens of times, and then finally, in April of 2004, he put the business in Carmen's name and reopened. It was no secret that the locals were working to get Perry deported, and many wondered why he insisted on such a public business venture in light of the city's hatred of him. It is speculated that this is where he met fresh gringos, the white American retirees who he would then swindle out of their savings. One of the worst hit was an early investor, an American named Bob Duncan, who lost almost $600,000. He had invested 50000 in Guardian Security and 75000 in Prime Medical, but he lost 450000 out of his bank account in Belize because Perry knew the necessary code numbers. He took Duncan's entire balance and then blamed it on Duncan's wife, Diane. But Bob Duncan knew she didn't have the codes and demanded that Perry return the money. At which, Perry made the first in a series of death threats to the man. Bob Duncan was found in October of 2002. Supposedly, he had committed suicide by hanging over his divorce and lost fortune. But many of his friends don't believe he would have killed himself. In my opinion, even if it was suicide, it was Perry's fault. He took everything the man had, caused his divorce, threatened him repeatedly. Another of those hit hardest by Perry was another American retiree named Gail Cancian. She was naive, and she believed Perry's schemes and trusted him with her bank accounts. 
She signed documents that she didn't really read and didn't even get her own copies of. What she was signing away was a property back in the States, which Perry quickly sold. In all, she lost about $450,000 to Perry and was forced to go back to work. She had planned to live off the interest she was earning in Ahahik for the rest of her life. Though she was naive in the beginning, she did fight back, suing Perry in civil court, using the same lawyer who had helped the Levines get temporary custody of their grandchildren in the year 2000. You can just imagine how Perry responded to this. Gail reports that she received many death threats from Perry and also Arthur March. By the year 2000, the people of Ahahik had already banded together, lobbying immigration and the Mexican government to do something about Perry March. As I said before, he bribed many officials and always managed to slither out of most charges. They even persuaded Nashville's News Channel 4 to investigate. The station ran three four-minute reports on Perry's nefarious doings in Mexico, keeping him firmly in the minds of Nashvillians. And along with several Mexican authorities that weren't on Perry's payroll, the Levines kept up their war to get Perry deported so that they could see their grandchildren. I told you about one incident on the last episode where they were tipped off to Perry's imminent deportation and came to scoop up the kids. It was later characterized as kidnapping, though the Levines were never brought up on charges. But one chilling detail to that incident was Arthur March chasing after them all the way to the airport. I mentioned it was traumatic for the children, and it was, but the Levines later claimed that was because Arthur March pulled a gun on them, pointing it at their car, screaming that they would never get out of Mexico alive. Thankfully, they did but they weren't successful in getting Perry March deported, nor in gaining custody of Sammy and Zippy. A judge ordered the children returned to their father in Mexico after the 39 days of visitation they were allotted. And so they did return, to life with Perry and their new stepmother, Carmen, their three step-siblings, their half-sister, and their grandfather, Art. Sammy, and especially Zippy, really did seem to like Carmen, and they did love their father. Later, in one of the many court proceedings, a child psychologist said Perry held great power over his children, almost to the point of brainwashing. He asked another Nashville news station to interview Sammy, though the Levines were successful in blocking the segment from being aired. It was later played in court, though, and Sammy, who Perry had originally insisted was asleep when Janet left that night, now told a memory of his mother coming and telling him goodbye. He said she had suitcases, and he waved to her from his bedroom window. It was proven that even an adult standing in Sammy's window would be unable to see the driveway due to how the house was designed. You would only be able to see the top of the garage. What's more, at Perry's trial, Sammy's kindergarten teacher testified. Not only did Janet miss Sammy's fifth birthday party, she also missed his first day of school, and he was very sad about it. He told his teacher that he missed his mommy and that she had left without even saying goodbye. It's pretty obvious that Perry coached Sammy for the news segment interview, and this speaks to terrible manipulation and control on Perry's part. In the last episode, I questioned the Levine's dramatic tactics in spiriting the kids out of Mexico, but you can see their point. They knew this sort of thing was going on. Maybe they truly felt their grandchildren's lives were at risk as well. And they never stopped fighting for their grandchildren, 
They kept bringing lawsuits, and even though the original wrongful death suit had been overturned, the Levines were finally granted a default judgment against Perry, who never showed up for court. After a three-day trial on September 7, 2004, the Levines and their grandchildren were awarded $6 million in actual and punitive damages against Perry March for the intentional and wrongful death of Janet. He was described by Ahahik locals as a smooth talker, and then later as downright scary. He was known to casually throw around death threats. And as I said earlier, Ahahik was over it and tried banding together to get Perry deported. At this time, I'm going to pause to hear a word from our sponsors. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It wasn't the small town of Ahahik that finally got rid of Perry March. Metro Nashville's cold case unit had inherited the case. They worked discreetly for years, and once they got their indictment, which was kept secret, they worked with the FBI and Mexican authorities to extradite Perry March. On August 3, 2005, Perry was arrested while he was opening the cafe. He didn't know he'd been under 24-hour surveillance for weeks, when suddenly, four cars with tinted windows pulled up to the cafe. Eight men with guns jumped out and grabbed him. Carmen sobbed hysterically that her husband had been kidnapped. In less than three minutes, Perry was gone, and then the Mexican immigration officials handed him over to the FBI at the Guadalajara airport. From there, detectives brought him back to Nashville to be arraigned. Perry March was formally charged with second-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and abuse of a corpse. Almost as soon as Perry March was in custody, the Levines initiated another action for full custody of the grandchildren, and they were immediately granted temporary full custody, but would eventually win permanent full custody. On the plane to Nashville, Perry started talking to Pat Pastiglione, one of the two cold case detectives. And even though the detective warned him not to talk, Perry, being Perry, just couldn't keep his mouth shut. He told Postiglione that it was time to, quote, close this chapter in my life. He said he would be willing to tell the whole truth if he could plead to manslaughter and serve no more than seven years. The typical sentence for manslaughter was three to seven years. Postiglione let Perry keep running his mouth and told him he could not make any deals himself, but that he would certainly relay the information to the DA's office. Prior to the Janet incident, Perry said, I have not been involved in any other criminal-type activity. The Janet incident. 
It kills me that Perry March, who always thought he was the smartest guy in any room, would knowingly confess to Janet's murder to a homicide detective who was escorting him back to Tennessee for trial. But he did. He asked about what life was like in prison, the difference between maximum and minimum security. He asked Postiglione what evidence they had against him, specifically whether or not they had found Janet's body. He asked if he could be charged for second-degree murder, even if the death was accidental. Through all of this, Pat Postiglione made no promises or real explanations. He just let Perry hang himself. Perry insisted that he loved Janet intensely, but that she had been a difficult woman and was portrayed too idealistically in the media since her disappearance. So he is sitting there basically confessing to her murder, and he's still saying it's her fault, because she was a difficult woman. On his first night in the Davidson County Jail, Perry was approached by another inmate named Russell Ferris. Ferris was awaiting trial for attempted murder. At first, Perry just asked Ferris the same questions he had of Pastiglione, basically how to manage in prison. At his first bond hearing on September 22nd, Perry sat and watched furiously as Tom Thurman, the renowned district attorney who had been assigned to this case early on and had been waiting nine years to get Perry into court, brought out reams of witnesses as to why Perry should not get bond. This one seems like a no-brainer. Perry was charged with serious crimes, and he had already fled to Mexico once, ignoring civil proceedings and rulings. But with all the other mistakes and delays in this case, the prosecutor was going by the book, and so was the judge. He wrote out a detailed six-page decision explaining why he was setting bond of $3 million to reasonably be assured that Perry would show up to court. He may have given bond, but he stipulated that it had to be secured by at least three different bonding companies. Perry would have to surrender his passport, have no contact with any witnesses in the indictment, and wear an ankle monitor. Naturally, Perry was furious. He knew he couldn't make bond and would be sitting in jail until his trial. So now we have the real Perry March in custody. Not a frightened, bumbling Perry, but the manipulative and scheming Perry. The Perry that blamed all of his rage and frustration on the Levines. Because after he was arrested, the Levines were granted temporary full custody of the children. Perry tried to fight this from jail, but to no avail. He now paced his 8 by 10 foot cell, 23 hours a day, fuming. He was still housed near the inmate he had met on his first night there, Randall Ferris. He approached Ferris and asked if they could talk more privately, and they managed to do it through a crack in Ferris's cell door. Randall Ferris was up for attempted murder and wasn't nearly as rich or resourceful as Perry March. His bond was only $25,000. Perry told Randall Ferris that he would get his bond posted if he would, in return, kill the Levines. That's right. From his jail cell, Perry started plotting to kill his in-laws. And he was plotting this with his father, Arthur March, who was still in Mexico. After about a month of these conversations with Perry, Randall Ferris got paranoid and told his mother and then his attorney about Perry's plot. His attorney went straight to the police and prosecutors. But jailhouse snitches are notoriously unreliable and often not believed. So Randall Ferris agreed to be set up with a wire to record these conversations with Perry to get proof for court. 
The tape started in October of 2005, and Ferris did a good job of sweet-talking Perry and keeping him at ease. He even said he was scared and wanted to know how he wouldn't be caught. He also relayed his fear of the colonel, meaning Arthur March, and Perry said, My dad is the coolest guy in the world. Let me just say this to you. If you showed up at my dad's door right now, my dad would feed you like a king and take care of you for the rest of your life. He went on to explain that Arthur would have no trouble with the murders because he was a killer himself, and besides, he'd do anything for Perry. Quote, My dad has killed about 300 people in his life. My dad was a Green Beret colonel. Let me tell you one thing. Trust me when I tell you I know for a fact my dad is a soldier, okay? He's at the end of his days, you know. He's 76. He wants nothing. He would give himself up for me in the blink of an eye. That's where he is in his life. And maybe that was true. Some think Perry overestimated his father's loyalty. Some think he simply double-crossed him. I think there's another obvious reason it all goes south with his dad that we will get into. So Perry gave Ferris Arthur's number in Mexico and a list of code words to use so Arthur would know Perry had authorized the call. The police then moved Ferris to the Williamson County Jail to give Perry the illusion that he was out. He told Perry he had made bond himself but was still willing to kill the Levines for money and help getting set up in Mexico both of which Perry and Arthur promised to do. Before he was moved, Perry gave him the Levine's address on a piece of paper. After Ferris was transferred, authorities taped five separate phone conversations between him and Arthur March. Art told him the right time of day to go to the Levine's, where to get the gun, what kind of gun to use, to wear surgical gloves the whole time, and finally, how to escape quickly to Ahahik after he had killed the Levine's. At one point in these taped conversations, Ferris tried to lighten the tone a bit and asked what it was like down there. Arthur said, quote, The sky is blue, the beer is cold, the women are hot. What the hell else do you need? Before ending the call, Arthur March warned Randall Ferris about Carolyn Levine. He told Randall to be careful because, quote, She's the smart one. She thinks there's nobody going to touch her, and she has built-in protection. It's called the Jewish Mafia, and she's the queen. It's interesting he focuses his ire on Carolyn, and he's often made similar disparaging remarks about Janet, calling her a Jap, a Jewish-American princess. I knew the word Jap was a racial slur to the Japanese, but until this case I had no idea it meant anything else. As a practicing Jew himself, it seems strange that this is what Arthur March focused on when he spewed hate against the Levines. But I think there is a two-part reason for this. Number one, he was never as successful as the Levines. He never had money. He never belonged in the elite social Jewish community the Levines were a part of. He was jealous. And for the second part, I think he focuses on Janet and Carolyn for no other reason than good old-fashioned misogyny. He had both of these things in common with his son. Perry had always lied and said he came from a long line of successful Jewish businessmen. He resented the marches as much as he depended on them and his misogyny towards Janet and women in general has been well-established in this series. But back to the plot to kill the Levines. The plan seemed to go through. Arthur went to the Guadalajara airport to meet Ferris, who would be arriving under the codename Bobby Givings, after he'd carried out the murders. 
but when he arrived, he was met by Special Agent Kenneth Senior of the FBI, who approached the 78-year-old Arthur and told him he had a few questions about why he was at the airport that day. Arthur insisted he was there to pick up a friend named Bobby Givings, but he turned very pale and shaken and had to sit down because all of a sudden he needed to catch his breath. Senia told him that his friend Bobby had been detained by Mexican immigration and left the old man standing in the airport. Of course, Arthur knew the jig was up now, and he made damn sure everyone knew that he would not leave Mexico willingly. Back in Nashville, he and Perry were indicted and charged with two counts of solicitation to commit murder by Davidson County and two counts of conspiring to commit murder by federal prosecutors. The federal charges were brought in order to extradite Arthur March, who remained a fugitive in Mexico. He was claiming entrapment by the FBI and said that he would not go peacefully like his son, that there would be bloodshed. A Mexican lawyer had told Arthur that the audio tapes between him and Ferris were inadmissible in Mexico, and therefore he could not be extradited. However, on January 6, 2006, President Vincent Fox of Mexico personally revoked Arthur March's visa and signed the expulsion order. Mexico was done with the marches. Good riddance to bad rubbish. Back to Perry in Nashville, once he no longer had Ferris to confide in and whine to, Perry made a new friend. One Cornelius King, another inmate housed close to him. He told King all about his wonderful life in Mexico, a paradise with his beautiful wife and children. As the two got to know each other better, Perry confided more. He actually confessed to Cornelius King that he had killed Janet. King later testified to what really happened the night Janet disappeared, and it would match up with the story that Perry told his father, because Arthur March was about to roll on his beloved son. At this time, I'm going to pause again and take a final break to hear a word from our sponsors. Arthur March was flown to Los Angeles, then to Nashville, with the same detectives who had accompanied his son, only he wasn't as foolish as Perry to run his mouth the whole time. With both father and son locked up, it was time to start negotiating. Perry had two top criminal attorneys, Bill Massey and John Herbison, known as Herbicide around the Nashville precincts. He was colorful and well-liked for a criminal defense attorney. Deputy District Attorney Tom Thurman had been on the case from the start, and he was now joined by Assistant District Attorney Katie Miller, who headed the Family Protection Team, specializing in domestic violence homicides. Janet's case isn't always spoken of in terms of domestic violence. Perhaps she doesn't fit the stereotype we're used to. She was rich, she had a very supportive family, and she was no shrinking violet. She was known as a spunky, even prickly woman a difficult woman. The point is, the stereotypes are bullshit. Domestic violence crosses all class and racial barriers. Ironically, if Perry March had not been so intent on hiding the truth, he actually originally had a good shot at the three to seven years he could have gotten for manslaughter, if it was indeed a fight that had escalated. This would not be an unusual plea deal, especially for a wealthy and prominent white man like Perry March. But ever the narcissistic ass, Perry March would never admit wrongdoing. That is, until his feet were in the fire. 
Now that the plot to kill the Levines was out, Perry was starting to lose some of that overconfident feeling of superiority he had over the police and prosecutors. His attorneys, Massey and Herbison, started putting a deal in motion with Thurman and Miller for 20 years. In exchange for Perry pleading guilty and describing how the murder had occurred, they would let Perry plead to second-degree murder at the state level with a 20-year sentence, and for the conspiracy charges on the federal level for the plot to kill the Levines, he would get an additional 20 years, but those could be served concurrently, effectively making Perry's sentence around 17 and a half years with time served and good behavior. Considering everything that this man had done and all the resources the state had put into finally getting him, this sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Arthur was also being floated a good deal. If he would plead guilty to his part in the murder for hire and confess his involvement in covering up Janet's murder, as long as he was willing to testify, he would get 32 to 48 months. But Arthur wouldn't budge. He knew his age and failing health made his own sentence matter little. All he was worried about was how it would affect Perry. His lawyer, Fletcher Long, kept telling him that Perry was close to making that 20-year deal anyway. And Arthur could go ahead and get on board and sign his own deal. Or he could wait and see if Perry took the stand against him to better his own chances. And they were starting to wear Arthur down. They pointed out that if Perry didn't take the deal, he was looking at over 50 years. And if Arthur took the deal, his son would be forced to. Art said, All right, I'll take 36 months if it will save Perry, because Perry really needs saving. Right after Arthur finally agreed to this, Perry burst into the room with his lawyer, Herbison, behind him, yelling, Dad, don't you roll on me. I don't roll on you. We will wear these jumpsuits as a badge of honor. A badge of honor. If I'm going to get 20 years, fuck them. I'm going down swinging. And this has always been Perry's stance. He never believed he would actually go down for Janet's murder, and he damn sure wasn't going to take a plea deal admitting that he had done it now. Larry Brenton, a local on-air reporter for WSMV in Nashville, who Perry had given many exclusive interviews over the years, said he had a chance to stay out of the public eye and give the public and the police time to forget about him. But he was so self-centered and big-headed and he continually kept going on air with my viewers, reminding them of who he was and arguing his innocence. Another tidbit, not well known, was that Perry was offered a sweetheart deal back in 1997. If he would plead to voluntary manslaughter and show them where Janet's body was, he would just face up to six years in prison. But Perry said no, fuck them, I didn't do anything. He was so arrogant in his belief that he would never be caught. But once the chips were down and he was extradited back to Nashville, it was this very deal he was looking to strike again when he was talking to Detective Pistiglione on the plane ride back to Nashville. When it became clear that the state was no longer offering this kind of deal, Perry tried to use his father as a sort of two-for-one. He told his lawyer to go back to the prosecutor and offer 15 years with his dad serving one year or, quote, we go to trial. He said one more thing to his father's lawyer, Fletcher Long. He said, Fletcher, you tell my damn brother and sister that they are not allowed to talk to Dad. Months before this, Fletcher Long had represented all of the marches in their civil suits involved in financial damages. However, once Arthur was caught up in the murder-for-hire plot, Fletcher Long was retained to defend Arthur and his representation of the whole family stopped. 
now long believed that Perry's outburst was really the result of visits Arthur had with his other children, Perry's brother and sister, Ron and Kathy. He suspected they had received letters from the federal government saying they were now targets of investigation. The other March children had remained mainly unscathed during Perry's ten-year battle with the Levines. They closed ranks with their brother early on. He called both of them the night Janet disappeared. And Ron had come to town, not officially as Perry's lawyer, but we know Perry did ask for him the minute the police showed up to question him that long-ago day back when the Levines were still publicly supporting him. At this point, it is definite conjecture as to what Ron and Kathy knew. Honestly, they could have been privy to everything from the beginning, but I highly doubt that. We're going to see just how involved Arthur March was, and I don't believe he would have drug his other two children into this. And now, Perry was doing everything he could to stop his dad from talking to his siblings. Fletcher Long at one point had to tell Perry that he couldn't tell Arthur who to put on his visitation list. When he showed up at the jail for the third day of negotiations with his client, both Ron March and Kathy and her husband, Lee Bredewich, were there meeting with him. They were there to persuade their father to give up Perry, to plead guilty to a lesser sentence, to serve a year or two and put Perry March's deeds behind him and save what was left of their family. And honestly, can you blame them? I don't think they knew the details or had any notion that Perry had killed Janet initially. But I think in the ten years since, they were inundated with stories, hounded by reporters, inconvenienced and bullied by Perry at every turn. I think they'd had enough. So Fletcher Long now had the other March children on his side, and he told Art, you gotta give him up. If you're going to protect the rest of your family and also not die in jail, you've gotta tell the truth. So Long and Arthur March met with U.S. Attorney Paul O'Brien that very same day. And Arthur spilled his guts. He said that on August 16, 1996, Perry had called him in Mexico and told him that he and Janet had had a big fight and he needed his help with the kids. It took Arthur almost four days to drive from Mexico to Tennessee, but he showed up as promised, all the while getting a greater sense that something more was going on. What had Perry done? And that's exactly what he asked him as soon as he saw him. Perry, what did you do? At which Perry answered, Come on, Dad. You know what I did. He went on, quote, Look, Dad, Janet and I had a fight. She came at me with a knife but missed, and I picked up a wrench that was being used by the construction guys and hit her in the back of the head. She fell down the steps and died. I had to get rid of the body. At first, that's all Perry told him. He said, I need your help to make sure there's no blood around. Go get Clorox, because I'm afraid there still might be some blood stains around the house. Let me show you where there used to be blood in the driveway and where there used to be blood in the kitchen headed out to the driveway. Then, as Arthur told his lawyer, Perry stood by and watched as his father, with crippling arthritis, got down on his hands and knees and scrubbed every inch of the place, including the gravel in the driveway as Perry stood by watching. Arthur said a few weeks later, Perry asked him to get rid of some stuff from his computer. It was the hard drive the police were looking for. Arthur was gone when the police had come to search. He had taken Sammy and Zippy to Chicago for Yom Kippur observance with the family. Perry followed behind in the Volvo once the police were done searching the Blackberry Roadhouse. 
after Yom Kippur, they left the children with Perry's sister's family, and Arthur and Perry rode back together in the Volvo. Arthur said right before they got home, Perry stopped off at a hardware store off of Interstate 65 and came back with a shovel and more Clorox. When they got home, Perry sat down at the kitchen table with his father and finally told him everything. Though he had initially admitted to the fight and even the wrench, he still characterized Janet's death as an accident. But now he came clean and told him it wasn't an accident. He had hit Janet purposely over the head with that wrench. And then he had put her body in a plastic bag and ran to the computer to type up the infamous list. He had then started making calls to his family and the Levines, floating the story that Janet had left him. Sometime around midnight, leaving his sleeping children in their beds, he put her body in the trunk of her car and buried it shallowly at a construction site that was owned by Sharon Bell, one of his clients. The site was less than five minutes from the Blackberry Roadhouse. Arthur immediately said, You fool! Why did you pick a place to stash a body so close to you that can immediately be traced back to you? Perry just said, We're going to have to move her, Dad, because they're going to start construction soon. He then told Arthur exactly where Janet's body was located, and they got in the car. Perry drove to the construction site, but stayed in the car as his father got out to retrieve Janet's body. He circled around the site, waiting. Arthur said of Janet's body, quote, It was in this black plastic bag like a leaf bag. It looked like something had been digging around on it. It had dirt on top. I pushed that off with my hands and then closed the bag and pulled it down the hill. It was just a slight hill where she had been placed. I took it down to the other side of the road and waited for Perry to bring the car back. They put Janet's body in the trunk of the Volvo together. Arthur said he didn't really look in the bag, but he did see some bones. He said he really didn't want to see and that it was light, weighing under a 100 pounds. Janet had only weighed a little over a 100 pounds in life, so this isn't surprising. He and Perry got back in the car and started driving north towards Chicago. They stopped at a motel when they crossed the Kentucky line. Arthur paid cash for a room for the night and told his son to go inside and go to bed, and he said, I'll take care of this. That's the thing about Arthur March. For all his faults, like I told you in the beginning, he really would do anything for his children. But though Perry liked to behave as though he were more sophisticated than his father, and certainly better educated, it was Arthur March that was used to having clean up his son's messes. Arthur's lawyer, Fletcher Long, seemed to understand the family dynamics. He said, Perry was always the I-can't-do-anything-right guy. Perry wasn't as tough as his dad, as savvy as his dad, as street-mart as his dad. Perry would go and screw things up, and Arthur would come around behind him and fix everything. And you've got to remember, though Arthur was messy with his own finances, filing for bankruptcy again in Nashville after the Levines had bailed him out in Michigan, he had lived for over 14 years in Mexico, happily staying out of trouble with both the law and his finances. That is, until Perry stepped back in to screw up his life. Moving back to Arthur's story... After he dropped off poor, tired little Perry at the motel, Arthur drove around looking for a place to dispose of Janet's body. He really wanted to put her in a body of water, but so far the creeks he had come across were too shallow, and he didn't trust that her body would stay put. Finally, as the sun was coming up, Arthur pulled over to the side of the road and saw what he called a heap of bush that was about 20 feet long and 10 or 15 feet wide. 
Arthur was familiar enough with farming that he knew this was a farmer clearing his land for planting, and that it would soon be burned. So in his mind, as he told his lawyer and the U.S. attorney, he was going to cremate Janet. He found this to be an acceptable method in Judaism, and sort of talked himself into it that way. He cleared three holes in the brush. In one, he dumped Janet's body, or her bones, what was left of her, into one of the holes. He put her clothes in another hole, and then he put the plastic bag in a third hole, fearing it wouldn't burn. He wanted to make sure it wasn't attached to Janet's body. He then covered all the holes and left. He later told Perry that he did dump Janet in a creek, something Perry would repeat to Cornelius King, the other jailhouse informant that testified against him. Cornelius would support the rest of the story Arthur March told almost word for word. It was said that Art knew Perry had a big mouth and never really trusted him, no matter how much he loved him, so he didn't give him the specifics. He let him think he dumped Janet's body in a creek. The U.S. attorney was satisfied with this statement and agreed to an 18-month plea bargain in exchange for his testimony against Perry. Now, they asked Arthur to lead them to Janet's body. It was the final straw, the final nail in Perry's legal coffin. But after ten years, he could not find the exact location. The highway lanes had been changed and widened, and the topography was totally different. Sadly, they were never able to find Janet's remains. On April 10th of 2006, Arthur began a videotaped deposition. There was concern that due to his failing health, he wouldn't be able to testify against Perry. So for two days, he gave a 150-page deposition. Arthur came across as a devoted father, a man who would do anything for his children. This deposition may have been about exposing his son, but he used it to malign the Levines every chance he got. He said his family was persecuted by the police and local courts and blamed it all on the Levines' supposed Jewish mafia connections, particularly Carolyn's. He said, quote, The reason she had so much power was she was the lady that distributed the money. You have a hole in your judicial system, I'm sorry to say. The hole is that judges at the lower level have to run for election. They can't run for office without getting money. And the Jewish mafia was a big contributor. And the one who doled out the money was Carolyn. That's where she got her power, and that's what Larry was building his on. He freely admitted his hate for the Levines, saying, They were liars. They were political animals who used her position with the Jewish mafia and his position with the Democratic Party to get what they wanted when they needed it. Otherwise, how did you control two judges who had no business even being in this case? He was referring to the presiding judge over Perry's civil cases, as well as the judge now presiding over the criminal proceedings. I think you can imagine how this might go for Arthur later. He also went on to disparage Janet Levine March again, calling her a Jewish-American princess and spoiled. Quote, Anything she wanted if she needed it, she went to her father. To my knowledge, Perry was there just for show purposes. Arthur March had the same problem his son did of never knowing when to just shut the hell up. All of this editorializing during the deposition of his feelings for the Levines, and especially for Janet, only made him and Perry look worse. Fletcher Long, Arthur's lawyer, knew this was bad, but there was little he could do to stop it. He also later said he admired the Levines' strategy all these years. He said all those civil suits were classic warfare to impoverish the Marches, and it was working. It's one of the reasons Perry couldn't keep his nose clean in Mexico. 
He needed the money to keep fighting the Levines in court. Perry was a convicted felon even before his murder trial started. In April of 2006, he was found guilty of embezzling $23,000 from Lawrence Levine's firm over the two years before Janet disappeared. Two months after that, he was convicted of the murder conspiracy charges. Then two months later, almost ten years to the day after Janet's disappearance, Perry's trial for the murder of his wife finally began. To avoid the effects of pretrial publicity in the Nashville area, jurors were selected from Chattanooga and then taken to Nashville to be sequestered while they heard the case. Prosecutors presented a predominantly circumstantial case against Perry, augmented by what little forensic evidence they had from the trace evidence found in Janet's Volvo. And they also had the incriminating statements Perry had made to Detective Pastiglione, his Mexican partner, his jail neighbors, and a few others. They also had the manuscript of a murder novel he wrote in 1997 about the strangulation of a small, beautiful brunette. It was from that manuscript that I read to open the series. Remember those words? She was lying on the smooth pile carpet, crumpled and soft-looking. She lay on her back, her left leg tucked beneath her, her head facing the ceiling, her hands to her throat, her eyes open and bulging. Now here's a quote on how Perry really felt about his wife, given during the probate hearings, years before her murder trial, mocking the value placed on her life. Quote, She was an absentee housewife who never earned more than a gift or inheritance from her parents, more than $2,000 in any reported year of her life. This from a man whose college education was paid for from those very parents he thought spoiled Janet. Those parents that financed the mansion he lived in, in Forest Hills, that after it was finished was worth almost a million dollars. The father-in-law that had given him a job after he was fired from his first and only other job after law school. To me, Perry was jealous of Janet, and he was contemptuous of her. But he often benefited most from the very things that made her spoiled in his eyes. I think that night, she had found the letters to the paralegal. She'd finally had it. She told him that she was not only filing for divorce, but that he could kiss his privileged lifestyle and money goodbye, including the job at her daddy's law firm. I think that part about the knife he told his father was just bullshit, just a way to justify what he did to Janet. And despite what everyone thought about his first-degree black belt in karate, he merely picked up the closest thing to bludgeon his wife of almost ten years to death with, probably coming up behind her and bashing her skull, just like the coward he really is. More than once from other witnesses, Janet Levine March has been described as a difficult woman. Like I said before, she was no shrinking violet. From my point of view, she had dominated Perry March over the years. She controlled the purse strings. She designed the house. But it's not all on her, and I am definitely not victim-blaming. It irritates me to no end every time I've read that difficult woman description of Janet. So what? So she was assertive. That doesn't mean she deserved to die. The Marches had a volatile relationship, and it's true many family and friends say Perry was psychologically abusive to Janet over the years. But I think in the heat of the argument, Janet didn't back down. She was enraged, and she was done. And since she was done, she was pulling the plug on Perry's lifestyle, his house on the hill, 
his law practice, his reputation in the Jewish community, everything. And he could not let that happen. Perry March's murder trial lasted for a week. On August 17th, 10 years and two days after Perry killed Janet, the jury reached a verdict after 10 hours of deliberations. They found him guilty on all charges. The Levines expressed their gratitude to the Metro Nashville police and prosecutors. Perry's lawyers, of course, said they would be appealing and that the overall case was weak, though they did admit the taped conversations with Arthur Perry and Ferris had been very strong evidence. Perry Avram March got the full 25 years for Janet's murder, seven years for tampering with evidence and abuse of her corpse, and 24 years for conspiring to kill the Levines, with another five years tacked on for theft charges. And, of course, Arthur had made a plea agreement with federal prosecutors that he would only do 18 months and three years of probation for his part in covering up Janet's murder and for the murder-for-hire plot. However, Just days before his sentencing, the Levine's victim impact statement was leaked to the press, in which they said he was a despicable human being who not only had shown no remorse but actually expressed regret that he didn't succeed in killing the Levines. Once again, the Levines played the media with master skill. U.S. District Judge Todd Campbell changed his mind and threw the book at Arthur March. He tripled his sentence for helping cover up Janet's murder and gave him five years for his part in the conspiracy to kill the Levines. His attorney, Fletcher Long, was duly outraged at the double cross. He said Arthur saw it all go down and had predicted this would happen. He told his lawyer before the sentencing that, quote, the Levines are too wealthy and too powerful. They'll never let me get 18 months. After his sentencing, he said, I've been fucked. I told you Carolyn Levine ran the Jewish Mafia. They've gotten to the judge. Three months later, on December 21, 2006, Arthur March died at the Federal Prison Medical Center in Fort Worth, Texas, of heart failure. As they said they would, Perry and his lawyers appealed his conviction to the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals, but he was denied. And in July 2011, it denied him permission to appeal the case to the Tennessee Supreme Court. With no further possibility of appeal in state court, Perry turned to the federal courts. From his cell, he hand-wrote a habeas corpus petition and filed it with the United States District Court for the Middle District of Tennessee. In another petition related to his murder conviction, he focused on the constitutional issues around his conversation on the plane with the detective Pat Postiglione and the statements made during the murder plot that related to Janet's death. He argued that the Tennessee Court of Criminal Appeals erred in assuming that he had initiated the conversation on the plane, and that the situation of having been under arrest and transported thousands of miles by air was inherently coercive. Three circuit judges were impaneled to hear the case. In June 2014, based on a review of the record and the previous decisions, they reached their own decision, which upheld the decision of the Tennessee Court of Appeals. Perry only had one more possible appeal left. Later that year, he told Nashville's WTVF news station that he was planning to file a petition with the U.S. Supreme Court. He said, I'm innocent and I'm hopeful the system will work the way it's supposed to. In June 2015, however, the Supreme Court denied the petition without comment, finally exhausting Perry March's appeals. 
Perry is currently serving his sentence at the Morgan County Correctional Complex outside Wartburg, Tennessee. He volunteers his time in the prison's law library, helping other inmates with their appeals. He told WTF reporters in 2014 that while he still hears from his daughter Sapora occasionally, he has yet to hear from his son Samson. At the time, Zipporah had been considering a career as a nurse, and Samson had become an engineer. Perry March will not be eligible for parole until 2038, another 20 years from now. He will be 67 years old, still younger than the father he threw away to prison. That's if he makes parole, which isn't likely. The last we heard from Perry, in February of 2017, He filed a 200-page lawsuit in federal court in Nashville, alleging that the quality of the kosher diet he receives is substandard and is a veiled attempt to force him to break the tenets of his religion. He hasn't gotten far with this latest attempt to stay relevant. Janet Levine March's mural on the walls of the Ten Angel restaurant in Nashville's West End is still there, and her other work is showcased at the art gallery named for her in the Jewish Community Center. Her legacy as an artist and illustrator is not forgotten, and neither is the work her family did to save her children. After Perry had been convicted, Lawrence and Mark Levine drafted changes to Tennessee law based on their experience fighting Perry in family court. They expanded grandparent visitation rights and allowed judges to terminate custody of parents found criminally or civilly liable for the death of the other parent. After they introduced the bill to Tennessee legislature, it passed quickly in both houses with unanimous support. Mark Levine later used this experience to successfully run for the Democratic seat in Virginia's House of Delegates in 2015. As an openly gay man working in constitutional law, he was an early advocate of marriage equality, organizing marches and rallies back in 1994. And he continues to fight the good fight for family law and for gay rights. I'd like to leave you with his words because they mean a lot. He fought for Janet until the end and continues to fight in honor of her memory to this day. Mark Levine told the Washington Post, quote, When I say I know the pain of an unjust law, it's visceral for me. When I say I don't quit, I don't ever quit. Southern Fried True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic art is by Cully Horner, and Southern Fried's original theme music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. As always, if you enjoyed the show, tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on Stitcher and many other apps. If you're interested in supporting the show, come check out my Patreon page or my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com, where you can make a one-time donation just by hitting the donate button. I also have a merchandise store open at whatamaneuver.net. Just search for the show name and you'll find all kinds of fun options. If you have any comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email me at southernfriedtruecrime at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys, and I'm always looking for new cases, so please feel free to reach out. I'm also all over social media. Just search the show name in your favorite platform if you'd like to connect with me there. If you're interested in discussing the Janet March case or any other episodes further, come check out my discussion group. It's linked to my main Facebook page. 
I would love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.